Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be with you this morning. Is this is this like everyone's favorite day of the year, daylight savings? Is it? I mean, isn't it? Isn't it great? I still don't know why we do it, but I love it this time, every time. It's great. I think the only reason we keep doing this is because we have that one day where we're tortured, but it just makes us happier on this day, you know, the first week of November for, for whatever reasons. And the other cool thing is, um, I'm not going to lie, I did notice a lot of you got here a lot earlier than normal. So, you know... <laughs> There are some benefits, I guess. Uh, my son said that um, he and his friend call this truly um, the most wonderful day of the year. So, um, <laughs> but anyway, it's great to be with you. Um, one thing about the beginning of November, I, I love the first week of November. I, I, this last week is one of my favorite weeks of the year, and because of a few things. Once it kind of kicks off, we have, we have Halloween, and it, when you have kids, it, it's kind of a fun night, right? And and it kind of reminds me of my own childhood and how that was, to me, the beginning of the, ho- the holiday season. And that marked it. Once you have that, it's like whatever you do in school, you don't even know what happens the next two months. Because it's, it's all about, it's the holiday season. And what's interesting is already this week on TV, if you've watched um, anything, I only watch sports, so on, at least on sports, um, there's already some Christmas commercials. You know, it start, you start to hear like the little sleigh bells in the background to get you to buy a Lexus and put it on the, on the driveway. And um, which, I, I don't want to spoil, you're, you're not getting one. Um, so... <laughs> But it's one of those things where all of a sudden something happens at the beginning of November that really just changes the vibe. It changes the atmosphere. And, and, and because we're heading into the holidays. And even around here, I'm, we're, I'm pretty excited. Our team was working and we have our, our Christmas series all ready to go. Um, our Advent series. Advent is this ancient Christian tradition where churches for the last 1,500 years have set aside basically four weeks leading into Christmas to prepare their hearts for the coming of Jesus or to remember what it meant that he came down. And in fact, this year our theme is God came down. And we'll be exploring what does that mean? Because God came down to be with us. What does that mean when we're people searching for hope or for peace, searching for joy? And how does God's coming down in the form of man as Jesus Christ how does that answer those questions, those needs that all human hearts have? And so I'm actually really pumped up for this year's um, Advent series, which is coming. Believe it or not, we're starting that. We have two weeks left of the Ezra series. Then it's Thanksgiving. The third week is when we launch that. Can you, so, you know, get ready. Thanksgiving is on its way. Holidays are here. And one other thing about that, uh, we, this year on our Advent series, we want to kind of have a bent on it that we know that people, for some reason, are more willing to show up at churches during this season of the year. They just are. And so we intentionally are thinking through, how can we be a place that someone who maybe, just like this last song said, for a wanderer to come home, for people to realize no one has wandered too far to come home. And so during our holiday season, we want to make sure that we are the church. We're already praying for people. We're praying for our friends, our family members, our neighbors, and we're also planning in a way that we expect people are going to come and they're searching and they need to know that they can come home. And so I'm really excited for, for that. And so we'll be talking about that throughout the holidays. I want you to already be praying and thinking through who's God putting in your life that maybe could benefit from hearing about Jesus. Now, you might be one of those people here today who will benefit from hearing about Jesus. And for you, welcome. We're glad to have you here. Uh, We believe that uh, true life is found in following him, and that's what we want to be about. So, 
That's coming up. I, I just, I'm really excited for it, so I just thought I'd let you know ahead of time um, that that's coming. And it just so happens we're, in the stu- we're studying through the book of Ezra, and today we're looking at a holiday that they celebrated in the book of Ezra. It's a holiday that was probably the biggest, it's, it's in some ways the Christmas of their calendar year. And so it's one of those where families gather together and people get together and they celebrate a significant event. So we'll be looking at that today in Ezra chapter 6. Now, if you haven't been with us for a while, and you, you may be wondering, why are we studying through this book called the book of Ezra, which many of us don't spend much time reading, uh, myself included. And one of the reasons when we looked at doing this series at the very beginning uh, when we, we were planning it, is we thought this is a great book about God's renewing a community of people and how we learn about how he exercises his, his authority, his providence over his people to accomplish his purposes. And we thought this is a great book to look at how it relates to a church today, being a, a community of God, being people who want to follow Jesus and trying to figure that out, and we can learn principles of how God works through his providence, meaning how he has his, extends his care over his people, and he works in the lives of his people for his purposes. And he, if he did that in the past, he wants to do that today. So that's why we chose to study through the book of Ezra. That and because we thought it's something that probably you haven't done in a long time, if ever. Um, and so it's kind of good to freshen up and, and try some other things. So... Uh, that's where we're going. So pray with me and we'll jump into Ezra chapter 6 in just a moment. God, we thank you again for this time. Uh, I thank you so much for how good you are um, to us as a church community. I thank you even for the reminder of the holiday season and kind of the uh, change in atmosphere that it creates in our nation. And, uh, and, and I just pray, God, that you would use this season to draw people to you. And Lord, maybe you need to use this season to draw us back to you. And so even today as we study this book in the Bible um, called Ezra, Lord God, let that be about you and learning more about your character and your plans and your will and not about us. So we thank you and we give you this time now. In your name, amen. So as we look here in the book of Ezra, again, we're, we're seeing throughout this whole series how God works in the events of history to work through his people for his purposes. Because at the end, God's purpose is he wants the rest of creation that does not yet know him to see his character on display, to see the, the goodness and the compassion and the love and the grace and the mercy and the justice of God on display in the lives of his people, so that he can draw the rest of creation to him. And so we see how God has always worked throughout history, and that's why we're studying. So today we're going to look in Ezra chapter 6, verse 19. If you're new to your Bible, it's nearly halfway. It's kind of almost there, halfway through. You're always welcome to use your tablet or smartphone uh, to look up scripture as well. And we're going to look at 6, starting in verse 19. Um, I have to confess, on your outlines today, I believe it says Ezra 4, 19. That is my fault. Um, it is actually Ezra 6, 19. Uh, that is not the fault of our printers or anyone else. I wish I could say it was, but it is mine. So, <laughs> Ezra 6, 19. And uh, we're going to read just a few verses here. We have a short, uh, just really a short story today. And one of the great things is, is last week Dale had a really long story. He had to condense into it. And so I, um, in making this series, made sure I only had a few verses so it was easier. So um, 
he has a lot more experience than me. So, you know, he should be able to handle it. So Ezra 6, 19 says this, The exiles observed the Passover on the 14th of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were pure. Then they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, both for their brothers and the priests and for themselves. The sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them to seek the Lord of God of Israel ate the Passover. And as they observed the feast of the unleavened bread, seven days with joy, for the Lord had caused them to rejoice he tur- and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria towards them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So here's what we're going to do today. We're just going to take a uh, walk through these few verses and then bring it home and, and ask the, the important question, the so what? <laughs> what does this mean for us today? But to understand what's going on here, again, to give a little context, the people of Israel lived in their land. They lived in Jerusalem. They had a temple. Uh, they had a capital. They had a kingdom. And they were exiled. They were taken from their land. And it was essentially as the hearts of the kings kept turning away from God, God finally handed them over to an enemy. Now they went into exile, and about 50 years later, a new empire took over, the Persian Empire, and issued a decree and said the Jews may return to Israel, return to Jerusalem, and rebuild their temple, and reestablish their kingdom, and reestablish their worship of their God, the God of the heavens and the earth. And so they did, and, and as we've been studying through, they've been on a kind of a journey the last 20 years for the first six chapters here. 20 years that they've been working out, trying to figure out what it means to return and to rebuild their temple, and now we're at the point in their history where they have rebuilt their temple, it's completed, and now they are able to reestablish the rhythms as a nation. Now again, in the ancient world, the temple isn't like rebuilding a church building. Church building is a place where we gather. It's a gathering place. But to them, the temple represented the presence of God. It didn't mean that God was not present without a temple. But in the ancient world, it was really important. It communicated to them that God was present with his people and that he had power and authority. And it also communicated to the other cultures around them that their God was a legitimate God. So the temple took on some significance. So they rebuilt the temple. And now we find here in verse 19, it says the exiles observed the Passover on the 14th of the first month. Now this is when it's um, decreed to them to celebrate the Passover. In our calendar, it's generally somewhere around March and April. Uh, It's used as uh, as a lunar calendar, so it fluctuates a little bit. And so it's roughly for us sometime around the Easter season. And uh, certainly the very first Easter was on Passover when Jesus was sacrificed as the Passover lamb. So they observed the Passover on the 14th of the first month. And the priests and Levites purified themselves. So this is just saying essentially that they were following the rituals and the rites that were decreed to them. They were returning their hearts to do things the way that God has asked them to do it. So the priests purified themselves. There was a return of the worship, the system that it was in place for their nation. And then they slaughtered the Passover lamb. Now, this, this is not just one Passover lamb. What the decree was that each family or family unit would have a Passover lamb, um, that they would slaughter the Passover lamb and then eat that lamb later in the day. 
And it could be a family of four, it could be a family of 20, it kind of depended, and there was some um, flexibility based on finances and all that kind of stuff and who could be included in that. But we know that by the time of Jesus, uh, a historian Josephus, who's not Christian, a historian, was writing about Passover and said by the time that Jesus existed, that it was in the tens of thousands of lambs would be sacrificed and slain on Passover each year. Can you imagine the scene that that would have year after year? So they slaughtered the Passover lamb and they ate it together. Now, a little bit of explanation about Passover. So Passover comes from, and it's important that we understand this, Passover is known even to this day as the festival of freedom. And Passover began as a tradition when the Israelites first were in slavery in Egypt. So they were living in slavery in Egypt and God sent a series of plagues and the final plague was a plague where this essentially, uh, a way to describe it would be the angel of death came over the land. And the Passover lamb, the Israelites were commanded to sacrifice a lamb, a pure and spotless lamb. You can see the foreshadow of what this event is for them. Take some of the blood of the lamb and put it over their doorposts, eat the meal, and then that night, as the angel of the Lord would pass over people, if they had the blood of the lamb there, would pass over the house and spare their lives. Spare the lives of their firstborn son, more, more um, clearly. So, now, if, if God told us to do that today, that would be kind of bizarre. <laughs> we would hear that and think, what in the world? And if Christians and, and followers of God everywhere said, oh yeah, we kill a lamb, we put the blood on our doorposts, and, and, and it, would, it would seem very strange. In the ancient world, this was like, okay, I, I get you. That's what you want to do. The sacrificial systems weren't all that strange to them. Things like this were, were par for the course. It was normal, not necessarily this particular one, but it wasn't as strange to them. So they would sacrifice this lamb, and the symbolism here was that it took something pure and innocent to spare the lives of guilty people. And so they take the blood of the lamb, put it on their doorposts, and the angel of the Lord would pass over the people. And then year after year, they had to celebrate this to remember that God would spare his people. He would deliver them from bondage. Now, the rest of the story was the next day, when Pharaoh woke up, essentially he, I'm speeding through the story, sends the people away, says, get out of my land, you may leave now. They leave and even as he pursues them, they find their freedom. And so it's a story, it's a festival of freedom that God set them free from their bondage. He set them free from, their, from the bitterness of slavery and they find freedom. So they go, so here now in Ezra, consider the symbolism here. They were they remember this rite, they celebrate it year after year, and then imagine what that would be like if you were a family that went to the temple each year. Which, by the way, the, t- the traditions of Passover ended up being you had to go to the temple to sacrifice. Originally it wasn't, but later as the priest system got established, it was. So imagine now that you were in the habit, year after year, of going to the temple, you bring your family, you sacrifice the lamb, you go home and you celebrate. You celebrate the symbolism of freedom, of God's provision, of God's faithfulness to you. And now what would it be like the year when you were exiled out of your land? A foreign army came and you were taken 
And as you and your family were leaving Jerusalem into exile, you look over and you see the temple being destroyed and torn down. And you spend, at this point, by the time the temple got rebuilt, it had been 70 years from the time it was torn down to rebuild. About that time. What would that be like, year after year, when that date came up? And you looked at that and you thought, I thought this was the festival of freedom. I thought this is when we remembered that God showed up and delivered us. What would that be like for you, for those experienced it? Now, what would it be like when you returned and it was reestablished? Because they knew and the leaders knew, and, and we saw a few weeks ago that when they returned and started rebuilding the temple, the people who saw the old one wept. They wept over the loss, the fact that they missed out on all those years. And the young generations rejoiced. I would imagine the same was this day, where the older ones probably said, oh, if only you had seen, why did we miss out on all these years of remembering God's faithfulness? But the younger generations who heard year after year about freedom, they, learned, they heard about the story but never got to celebrate this holiday. Now they're having it for the first time. And they're seeing that once again, God shows up. Even in a season when they thought maybe he left. But they returned and they celebrated Passover again. The symbolism it must have been for those returning from exile would be huge. I think we could compare it to 4th of July for us, right? We celebrate year after year. We celebrate 4th of July. And, and for many of us now, what is it? It, it, it becomes, it's originally supposed to be Independence Day. That's what it is. It tells us that we're no longer under the tyranny of the King of England. So we celebrated, right? And we celebrate and we, we light fireworks and we eat hamburgers and have Sam Adams and watermelon and all kinds of stuff because that's what you do because we're Americans on that day. <laughs> Don't even need the A, right? Because it's that, that's how patriotic that day is. We don't have bangers and mash and bubbles and squeak and all that other stuff. Anyone get what I'm saying? Anyone? British? No? Okay, it's funny. All right, so. <laughs> but now imagine if we were taken away and every 4th of July... We used to think, oh, remember when we were free. Remember when we experienced that. Remember when we had those hamburgers on that day because we said we don't need fish and chips today. <laughs> <laughs> and year after year, you'd be reminded, but this isn't how it's supposed to be. And what rejoicing would there be when you regained that freedom? When once again you said, oh yeah, we are free. That's what it was for them. Year after year, they were supposed to remember that God set them free and then they experienced this bondage once again. This essentially slavery once again because of, again, their hearts turned away from God. They were experiencing the results of their sin. God wanted to send them away for a season and they came back and now they were saying, yes, this is who our God is. So they returned. They celebrated it. It says in verse 21, notice this, it says, the sons of Israel who returned from exile and all who separated themselves from the impurity of the nations joined them. Now, this is an interesting sentence. The first thing it says, the exiles celebrated it, the sons of Israel celebrated Passover, and all those who separated themselves from the impurity of the nations. 
Scholars are a little unclear on who this is relating to. Is it the, the Israelites who were never exiled? Um, was it uh, other people who, were in, who became followers of Yahweh? And that, the latter idea seems more, uh, more of the case here. Others in the nation who said, we want to join with you. We want to be a part of the worship of your God. We're included in this celebration. We're going to look at that a little more in detail in just a moment to learn about that. So anyone who wanted to separate themselves from the impurity of the nations to say, we will be a follower, they got to celebrate Passover. And then they observed the Feast of the Unleavened Bread for seven days. Now this is, this is part of Passover. You sit, after Passover, you have seven days where you celebrate the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. This means you cannot eat any bread with leaven in it. That means basically having, nowadays we call it matzah bread. It's like salting crackers for a week. Uh, it's any bread that does not have yeast in it to rise. And the symbolism is the very first Passover, God said, I want you to eat it in haste because I'm doing something and you better be prepared. And if you bake bread with leaven in it and wait for it to rise, you're saying God's not going to show up. We got time. And so you couldn't have any leaven. It was a symbol of saying, God, we're prepared. We're ready. We're ready. In fact, the very first Passover meal, this is interesting, side note for those of you who like side notes. The first meal, they were told to eat it while standing up with their loins girded, to eat it in haste and be ready to go at any moment. The reason for that actually is one, again, because they're prepared to leave, but that was a symbol of slavery. Servants ate standing up. After their freedom, they were commanded to eat it while reclining. Reclining at the table and, and uh, the picture of Jesus in the Last Supper, they're eating the Passover meal. They're reclining at the table. That's why we read in Scripture, if there's a story in Scripture where one of Jesus' disciples is laying on his chest while they're eating. I, growing up, I always thought that was a weird story. Because I always thought, if I'm eating Thanksgiving dinner and somebody, one, one of my, you know, someone's sitting next to me to lays on me, I'm like, whoa, I need all the room I can get, buddy. <laughs> it was because they all reclined. Because reclining, Jesus would have been reclining on the person next to him, who was probably Judas Iscariot, by the way. And they're reclining, and it was a symbol of freedom because free people were able to recline and relax. So this is the symbolism as they go and eat it. And they ate the pat, they celebrated for seven days with joy. Again, do you see why this is like Christmas for us today? Isn't the best week of the year between Christmas and New Year's? Isn't that great? Unless you work in retail. If you work in retail, I know. I apologize. But for the rest of us, it's, a, it's the best week of the year. That, and we celebrate with joy. It's the same for them. Because the Lord had caused them to rejoice. He turned the heart of the king of Assyria towards them to encourage them in the work of the house of God. Now one more side note, scholarly note. Here it says the king of Assyria. Um, if you've been... Remembering this story, if you've been with us or read it earlier, it's actually the king of Persia set them free. But Ezra here, when he's writing it, says the king of Assyria. Technically, he's right. And, and the way he uses this term in, in, in this place is that Cyrus was over Assyria and he was trying to connect it to the fact that you were taken away by the Assyrians and that now who's lord over that land has sent you back. It's a side note. You can forget it if you don't care. Um, but that's the scholarly note of that. It's not an error. So that's the story we see here today. God set them free once again. So here's the big question for us. Why does this matter? 
Why does this matter? What do we learn about our God from this story? You see, because Passover, the significance of Passover was to remember the bitterness of slavery, to remember bondage. It was to celebrate God's deliverance for his people, to celebrate the fact that God was able to intervene in the course of history and bring freedom. It was to celebrate that God had providence over even the foreign nations. So why? Why is this story tucked in here? Why are we reminded of it? What do we learn? And there's a few thoughts I have for you. Here's the first thing that we see in here. And these are themes you've heard already in this study of Ezra, but it bears repeating. First one is this, is we learn that God is a sovereign God. Ezra 6.22, when he says, because God caused the hearts of the people to rejoice, he caused the king of Assyria or Cyrus to return them to their land. God is over all things. It's a reason for us to rejoice. For us today, we must remember that God is in control of all things. And again, we've said this before. It's nothing new. But I don't know about you, but for me, I fully believe that God's in control of all things, but sometimes it's really hard to accept that. Or it's hard to live like I believe that. The theologian R.C. Sproul says this. He says that most Christians salute the sovereignty of God, but they believe in the sovereignty of man. You see, most of us have no problem saying, we believe God is over all things. We believe that God is in control and on his throne. But when it comes, and we think that's a great idea, But at the end of the day, we believe in the sovereignty of man. We kind of say, yeah, he is, but what man does, mankind does, is more powerful sometimes. I know for me, one of the things that uh, in our marriage, we've, we've been able to the whole time learn to trust that we say God's in control of all things. We believe he's in control even of our, our well-being, our finances. That's not an easy thing. We, month after month, to trust God with a portion of your income. It's not easy. And one of the reasons I think it's so important for followers of Jesus to be in a habit of trusting God with some of your finances, being generous, supporting the church, supporting missionaries, things like that, is yes, let's be honest, the church need, organizations need your, your help. Churches need your help to exist. We do. But the other part of this that is so important is that it demonstrates It's an active demonstration of a belief that God is in control. Of saying, God, I don't want this portion of my life to own me. But that's hard. There's times I look at what we give and I say, wow, you know, the difference between renting and owning is right there. (laughs) It's right there. But God, if I can trust you, it's okay. It's okay. It's not easy, but it's a monthly reminder of that. Many of you know what I mean. It's a struggle sometimes, but it's an active demonstration. God, do we trust that you're in control? So what does God's sovereignty mean? Uh, In Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 6, I have this verse for you up here. It's a prayer that they pray. And Nehemiah, by the way, used to be, it used to be a combined book with Ezra. Uh, We didn't, we didn't separate it. It says this, you alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of the heavens and all their hosts. The earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that's in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly host bows down to you. In other words, all the angels in heaven bow to you. This is what it means to believe in God's sovereignty. Everything is under his control and he alone sits at top. 
So the sovereignty of God means that he is Lord over it all. It means that he is able to work all things for his purposes. Now, please understand this. This doesn't mean that God makes everything or causes everything that happens to happen. God doesn't work to cause evil to happen in your life or pain to happen in your life. That's a result of sin, on the mark of sin on humanity. Sometimes God allows it to happen. Although I do wonder how much evil is prevented by the hand of God. Because humans, I, I do believe that, not spiritually speaking, but we, we do have, you know, when you look at humanity, people will say that there's a little bit of good in everyone. And I think there probably is a little bit of good in everyone, not necessarily good enough to make you a Christian. That's not what I mean. But there is a hint of good in, in most people. But that's a mark of God's providence on our lives. We, in theological terms, we call it common grace. It shows that God is working in people's lives. There's a mark of his image on us. But, by and large, with sin, what's the description of humanity? We, apart from having a moral compass, apart from having God working in my life, in the lives of the people I know, humanity is filled with jealousy, with deception, manipulation, greed. And those are just our political candidates. So there's all of this here, but God still works in a fallen creation for his purposes. He can still work with broken people for his purposes. So the sovereignty of God means that he's able to work. What it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that he'll never allow bad things to happen. It also doesn't mean that he will always give you what you want. I would love if the sovereignty of God meant that he will always give me what I wanted. I believe that it probably means he always gives me what I need. Um, Tim Keller, we, we're going to show you this, this quote later, but Tim Keller says this when it comes to prayer, and it has to do with God's sovereignty. It says this, God will either give us what we ask for or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. Isn't that great? God will either, either give you what you asked for or give you what you would have asked for if you had the knowledge he has. That's a description of God's sovereignty. He knows your past, present, and future. He knows what's going to happen. He knows your heart. He knows what you need. And he allows us to get what we need. So the first thing we learn, the Passover story is a reminder that God is over all, that God is a sovereign God. The next thing we learn from this is this, is that God is a missional God. Now what do I mean by that? That's a word that Christians made up about 10 years ago. I'm not kidding. We had missional churches. Maybe it's been about 15 years. It's not even in, it wasn't in dictionaries for a long time. I love when we do that kind of stuff. But so God is a missional God. He's a God who's always on mission to redeem and restore his creation. God is a missional God. Passover is a display that, of God's presence in people's lives and saying he's even on mission to welcome in the outsider. In this story, we saw that anyone who was willing to separate themselves from the impurity of the nations was welcomed in. God cares about people who are not already in the family of God. In Numbers chapter 9, verse 14, there's a command speaking about uh, what it means, or, or some of the commands about Passover. And it says, if any alien or foreigner is in your midst and wants to celebrate Passover, you should not permit, forbid them. They had to purify themselves, which essentially is their way of saying, if they want to convert and be a follower of me, they are welcome. See, Passover is a reminder that the family of God is open to all. 
Holiness matters. Following him matters. But it's open to all. He's a missional God. He cares about people. Outsiders have always been welcomed in on Passover. Let's not miss the symbolism too of Passover and that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. See, the story was a Passover lamb had to be slain so that your sins could be, or so that you could be passed over and your life could be spared. When Jesus Christ was crucified on Passover, as a pure and spotless lamb, his blood was shed. And because of that, your sins could be passed over. In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 25, don't have time to go there, I encourage you to look it up. It talks about there's no distinction between people because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You're not special. Your friend's not special. Because you all, there's no distinction. You've all fallen short of God's glory. And then it goes on to say, but because the public display of Jesus Christ on the cross, he was able to pass over your sins. And all are welcomed in on this. I I think this is so important that we keep this in mind. That God is on a mission to redeem and restore and welcome you. Some of you here today need to know that you are not too far from God. Your friends are not too far from God. He cares. That's why I, I honestly, I really think the Christmas season, one thing I love about it is because I think it's God's way of working with our culture to bring people to him. Think of this. You go shopping in Target, or I won't say the name. You go shopping in a big store that might, might not be willing to say Merry Christmas, okay? They might, when we make a big deal about it, they won't say Merry Christmas, but you might hear Silent Night playing on the speakers, You will hear songs, Christmas songs, for like two months. And yes, a lot of them are about Santa Claus and the Grinch and ridiculous things. I get it. A lot of them are about warm feelings and all this. But you can go into a coffee shop and hear Away in the Manger. And I think, I really believe that God's providence, His sovereignty, is He has kept and preserved our nation and somehow uses this season to make people open and receptive to Him. I honestly think it works that way. There's something about that season. And even if like some of the songs are cheesy, we, we are allowed to listen to Christmas music after Halloween in my house. It's, it's in our constitution. So November 1st, you can listen to it. And I have a game I play with my family. Sometimes I try to get stupid songs in their head. <laughs> and Christmas provides a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, the other day I was doing the, you know, because some of the Christmas songs are dumb, like, I mean, they're, sorry if you like it, but, um, you know, you have some like, it's simply having a wonderful Christmas time. I mean, really, what is that? You know, simply having a wonderful Christmas. Mood is right. <laughs> That's for free. It'll be in your head the rest of the day. <laughs> but yeah, so we walk around thinking like, what is it? I mean, all of these things seem kind of weird, but then people honestly feel like there's something different. I believe God uses this because he wants to draw people to himself and he does year after year. He cares about people. This week I was sitting out in the corner our newly remodeled coffee shop and had the door open to the patio and, and there was a couple who came and they were sitting and talking and they're sitting at one of our tables in the shade. When they left, they, we said hi and they came in to talk and, and one of them, he goes, hey, do you remember me? And he said, and, and he reintroduced himself, and two years ago, he was a teenager, he's homeless, 
and he was living you know, behind our church. <laughs> and now he has a place to live. He spent six months in jail. And he said, you know, when I was in jail, I became a Christian. And I was baptized. And then he started asking, and he said, you know, so I got a question for you. What happens if I still struggle with the same things? What happens every time I reach for the meth pipe? What happens every time? And he listed like five or six sins, which I love that about new Christians or people who aren't Christian. They don't know yet you're supposed to act perfect. He told me all the... He told me all of his sins. He's like, what about if I do this and that? He goes, because I still do that stuff. And I looked at him and I said, you know what? I think right now, one, first of all, God won't run away from you. Who has run? He goes, I just don't feel close to God anymore. I'm like, well, who left? But then second is he still loves you. He cares about you. And I think that you, and then he had a friend with him, and I said, you too, who was trying not to talk at all the whole time, and I said, God wants you both to know he sat you here for a reason. You needed shade at the church for a reason today because he wanted you to know that he cares about you, he loves you, and he has a better plan for your life than the stuff you guys are into right now. I wish I could say they fell on their knees, they cried, they became Christians, they're on TV today evangelizing. They're not yet, but I think God sent them there for a reason. Our cross path, our paths crossed. I, I believe he uses holiday seasons. He used Passover to remind people of his presence. He cares about people. That's why we need to be a church who cares about people. There's people who need that hope that comes from Jesus Christ. It doesn't come from anywhere else. <sighs> Preaching here. All right, so. Second <laughs> Peter 2.9 says this. I have it on the screen for you. There it is. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Oh, that is not the right one. Have the wrong one for you. 3.9. I'll read it. <laughs> says this, that God is not slow to keep his promises, as some understand slowness, because he desires that no one will perish, but all will experience eternal life. But is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance and experience God's grace. He wants all to come to repentance. He's a missional God. Finally, the thing that we learn, so we learn that God is a sovereign God. He's a missional God, and he is a faithful God. That God is faithful. He follows through with his promises. That the promises of God, who he says he is, is who he is. It doesn't change. He's faithful to his character. We learn that he's compassionate, that he's slow to anger, that he's gracious. We learn that he's merciful, full of loving kindness. I've included some verses for you that you can look up this week. I talk about some of the character of God and how he is faithful to his, to who, his own character and who he is. All of Psalm 86 is a great one to read about God's character and say he is faithful to that. The story of Passover is a reminder that he is faithful faithful that he shows up time and time again and keeps his promises i was thinking the other day when it comes to faithfulness and keeping promises you know kids have one little bit of power my kids have power over me and and they do in one thing uh, probably a lot of things but one of the things that always works is if they say dad remember that you said that we could but 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 whatever it is that trumps 
all my tiredness, all my anything, because they say, Dad, do you remember when we said that we could, you know, whatever, jump on the trampoline for four hours? And, which I never say, but when they bring that up, Dad, you said we could go to the store and get this. Dad, you said we could watch this movie. Dad, why does that appeal to me so much? One, because if I said it, I want them to trust. Now, it's not about saying, yeah, I'll give you this, so I, but following through with promises. Our God, we never have to go to him and say, but I thought you said you'd be compassionate. <laughs> He's faithful to who he is. Passover reminds us that God is faithful. Even when things around you look like they're falling apart. He's a faithful God. For our community here today, as we grow as a church in, in our knowledge of Jesus, may we grow with knowing that he is sovereign, that he is over all, that he is missional, that he cares about the people, and that he is faithful to his promises about who he is. You can trust that. We as a church can trust in the character of God. We don't have to fear. We don't have to run. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and uh, end our time. And, and we're going to do a couple things. One, uh, just so you know, we're going to end with this song and then we're going to have just a brief moment where as, as a congregation, we're actually going to take a moment to pause and pray for our nation. Something's coming up on Tuesday. Um, no one's heard anything about it yet, but um, we're going to pause and pray. So after this song, I want to ask you to s- just hang out with us for a, two more minutes. But as we respond... Let's respond with hearts that say, God, we're so grateful that you are in control. We're so grateful that you do care. And we're so grateful that you are always faithful. So as we end, I want to ask you to stand as a sign of solidarity and we'll sing this last song together. Let's go, go ahead and stand. God, we thank you for this time and we thank you for your character. We thank you for how good you are. We thank you um, how you work in the lives of people, including ourselves because of your love and compassion and grace and mercy. Lord, sometimes your justice we experience is even for our good. And so we thank you and we ask now that you continue to speak to our hearts. Lord, let us as a community of faith respond to you right now with great worship, hearts that are grateful because of who you are. So we give you this time now.